Hello and welcome to the Talkspot. I'm Tim Scott and today I'm talking with Alberto Salamone, Associate Professor at the University of Turin in Italy. He's also President of the European Workplace Drug Testing Society. Alberto Salamone, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for the invitation. Very happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. And before we get into talking about some of the work that you've been doing, how are you and your colleagues coping in light of the COVID pandemic? Italy has obviously been hit pretty hard. Yes, of course, that's true. Well, in terms of uh, laboratory activity, it's not going too bad, I would say. I mean, I have a dual role. As you said, I am a professor at the university. And of course, the university was shut down completely. So uh, there was no activity for three months. Now they are trying to reopen but uh, with a lot of caution, so uh, the laboratory is still uh, not working. But I'm also a supervisor of the forensic toxicology unit in another laboratory named the Regional Anti-Doping Center. And this laboratory never closed during the pandemic because we were uh, providing uh, analysis for the national health. So we, of course, we had to put in place all the countermeasures like limited access, wearing face masks, uh, check of body temperature, but uh, it didn't change much. You know, when you deal with biological samples, you are already used to use some of these precautions. And of course, uh, the number of samples decreased because uh, there were much less cars on the streets. So less car accident, less control, less driving relicensing. We, so we coped uh, pretty well. Working in a, a high throughput laboratory has certain challenges. I, I come from more from a background of working in a crime laboratory, post-mortem laboratory, but a workplace testing anti-doping laboratory has much greater number of samples than a crime lab. So that's one of the challenges, I suppose. What other challenges have you found working in a, a workplace testing laboratory? Oh, the challenge is um, that uh, people always complain. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, uh, testing in workplace is uh, complex because uh, it's uh, rarely regulated by the national law, uh, not completely at least. And uh, there are different approaches uh, regarding the timing of testing, uh, the frequency, uh, the type of samples, sometimes the panel of drugs. So sometimes workplace drug testing is seen as a violation of the individual's privacy. Typical yes. example is when uh, urine is tested on Monday morning and the sample is positive because uh, the subject has taken a drug on Saturday night. And the self-defense is uh, what I do at home is my own business. I think that uh, each forensic toxicology has heard this kind of explanation at least yes. once in his life. I mean, it's, it's true. Uh, what you do at home is your business. But uh, when you have a sensitive job and there is a drug-related risk to safety and productivity, then it's not only your business. It's, a, it's the business of the community. The problem... Um, with workplace drug testing is that sometimes this message is not uh, always clear. I mean, the message that the aim is to build a safe workplace. And this should be a prerogative for everyone, for employers, for employees, uh, for everyone. Uh, so the challenge is that uh, 
sometimes we have uh, complain with no basis and uh, we uh, we wish that um, policies uh, objectives rights responsibilities of all parties involved would uh, be made more explicit yeah sure but and from a technical point of view the the analysis are easy it's a very routinary <laughs> work yes so Italy's legislation around workplace testing is a bit different, I think, to some other countries. How does the legislation govern workplace testing in Italy? It's basically a random testing performed on some um, at-risk uh, jobs, like uh, drivers uh, and some uh, other few professions. The legislation is very simple. There is a, a random control, which sometimes is not real random because uh, in some situation... Uh, there is uh, probably some advice coming from the employer or from the MRO uh, informing the employees that there will be some testing. I see, okay. I'm saying this because, uh, of course, it's, we have no evidence of this, but I'm saying this because when we see the statistics, the number of positive samples are very low, around 1%. This is probably not representing the real situation uh, outside. Right. And what kind of samples do you test in your lab? For workplace drug testing, is only urine in the first okay. uh, stage of the control. And then in, the, in some situation, there might be some control on hair because uh, the employees has to prove that he, he's not a regular user of that drug. But in general, we test uh, any kind of biological samples, typical of forensic toxicology. I mean, uh, urine, uh, blood, hair, a lot of hair, uh, because driving relicensing in our region is uh, based on hair analysis exclusively, both for drugs and alcohol. Uh, much more rarely oral fluid. These are the samples that we usually test in the lab. Okay. So in what circumstances? Would you test oral fluid? Uh, very rarely. It's sometimes for um, roadside control when there are some pilot projects conducted by the police and they're trying to check the validity of uh, oral fluid as an alternative matrix to blood. But uh, so far, it has been only uh, experimental uh, or pilot projects. So it's not a routine, at least in our region. You might see it more often in other regions but uh, it's, very, it's very rare for our laboratory. And one of the things that you've done quite a bit of work in is in the analysis of hair. And one aspect of that is in trying to work out what cutoffs are appropriate to use for particular drugs in hair, which can be quite a challenging task. Yes. Um, cutoffs uh, are, of course, very debated and can be sometimes uh, misleading in the interpretation. There are the cutoffs established by the scientific society, like uh, Society of Hair Testing mainly. And uh, in my opinion, these cutoffs are uh, still uh, valid and uh, they offer a very effective uh, tool to discriminate between uh, uh, real or regular exposure to the drug and uh, an occasional exposure or, or passive exposure to the drugs. It is very important that the laboratory is well aware of the existence and of the meaning of these cutoffs. 
sometimes, uh, not in our situation, but in other situations, uh, it happened that uh, some results below the cutoffs are reported as positive. And uh, this is probably not the best strategy, the best approach to the analysis, because uh, we all know that uh, very low concentration of drug into uh, hair samples can be produced by external contamination or passive exposure. If you take, for example, some uh, families at risk where the parents or the the adults taking care of the children are using drugs. The scientific literature proved that the hair of the children can result positive, even if, if, of course, they didn't take any drug. But it is important that uh, this very low concentration are uh, interpreted by a forensic toxicologist with a certain dose of experience in the field. Because otherwise, the sanction for the individual can be totally inappropriate. Yeah, so I guess in certain types of cases, those lower cutoffs might be appropriate in in a drug-facilitated sexual assault, for example, where you're trying to look at a single dose, perhaps, of a low-concentration drug. Perhaps you want to go lower there. But the balance that we're trying to achieve here is not picking up maybe accidental exposure, environmental contamination, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, trying not to miss any that uh, where people are regularly using. Correct. And the example of the drug facilitated sexual assault is very nice because in those situations, of course, it's essential to identify the single exposure. But uh, otherwise, uh, in most of the situation, it's, imp- it's important that uh, the regular use of the drug is uh, highlighted by the hair analysis. Hair analysis is uh, very expensive and uh, some challenges, some issues, but a lot of uh, can give a lot of useful information. It's an excellent indicator, as we said, of addiction, but uh, it's very important that uh, the interpretation is uh, given together with the result of the analysis. So EWDTS has guidelines as well for hair analysis, urine analysis, oral fluid analysis. How, how do these interact with some of those other guidelines that you were talking about, like the EWDTS hair guideline? How does that interact with the Society of Hair Testing guidelines? Pretty well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, the ec- panel of experts uh, who worked on the EWTS guidelines for hair uh, were, um, was um, composed of um, members of Society of Air Testing as well. Uh, one was me, but uh, there was also, for example, Pascal Kins, who is the founder of Air Analysis, mm-hmm. and Marcus Baumgarten, who is a past president of Society of Air Testing. So there are many similarities and points in common, in so much that uh, EWTS is now working on the revision of these guidelines, but we have... Uh, uh, frozen the, this process for the moment because we are waiting for the next revision of the consensus of society of testing. But unfortunately, this should have happened in the next during the next conference of the society of testing in June now next week. But uh, of course, the conference was cancelled because of the COVID nineteen. So probably you will see a revision of this document next year. Yeah, a lot of things are getting postponed at the moment. And I mean, these kinds of guidelines, 
it's difficult for these guidelines to keep up with the latest scientific discoveries that are happening because it takes quite a while to get to build that consensus to update a guideline. Um, but obviously, new research is happening all the time. People are coming out with new data and finding new things. And it would be great to be able to add these to guidelines immediately. But of course, you can't do that, really. Yeah, that's true. Uh, sometimes uh, there is probably a misinterpretation of guidelines because uh, uh, guidelines sh should be a list uh, of recommendation and uh, best practices. Uh, then, of course, there is the reality. The real, real cases can be different from uh, what we are used to see every year. There will be always something exceptional. And so it's important that guidelines uh, highlight the, the fact that uh, besides the recommendation, there must be always the expert, the scientist, who can offer this uh, interpretation or a different approach when there is the special case. For the large majority of cases, the guidelines are uh, perfectly are working perfectly well. They are uh, the best and suitable tool to deal with these samples. When, then, when there is this, this exceptional case, that's the moment when the forensic toxicologist should be involved and help uh, with the dealing of this case. Of course, taking in consideration all the recent literature. One of the drugs that's particularly difficult to determine cutoffs for in, in any sample type really, but mostly hair and oral fluid, is THC because the potential for environmental contamination, passive inhalation, is quite high because it's often smoked. Uh, and so the EWDTS guidelines for oral fluid, for example, the, the THC confirmation cutoff is 2 nanograms per mil, which is quite low. Can you talk about the any debates that sort of happened during the the formation of that cutoff level? Uh, uh, yes, I, I, I'm not an expert in oral fluid, as I said, but um, the general inspiration of these guidelines was um, that there are some technical limits of detection uh, for certain drugs in certain samples. So as long as there is a, the possibility to detect two nanogram per milliliter in oral fluid, they, these uh, can uh, still be pursued by the technical uh, assessment. Then again, there is uh, interpretation of the case. I mean, having two nanogram per milliliter in oral fluid is not so easy because uh, the subject would have to explain how that small quantity, yet it's a small quantity, but still, how that quantity went into his body. And uh, this can be useful um, hint to uh, identify some situation at risk. I mentioned the families at risk. And for example, in that situation, uh, uh, that uh, information of uh, accidental exposure to a low quantity of THC can still be useful to, to some organization. We um, recently updated the Australian standard for oral fluid and the THC confirmation cutoff was 10 originally and it was brought down to 5, which was a bit controversial, even bringing it down to 5. One of the issues being about the passive inhalation defense, which people can use. But as you say, it obviously needs interpretation, but 
a, a level as low as five or two can also indicate recent use. Yes. And uh, speaking of workplace drug testing, it depends on the legislation. If the aim of the uh, testing is to distinguish between uh, recent uh, or past intake or identify any state of impairment at the workplace, uh, small quantities of the parent drug in the oral fluid can be very important. And so one of the other compounds that I believe you test for in your laboratory is ethylglucuronide in hair. Is that right? Yes, correct. So what are, tell us, what are the situations where you test for that? Is this drivers mainly? It's mainly driving relicensing, yes. So where people have to show that they've been abstinent over a period of time? Not abstinent, but uh, they have to prove that they were not chronic user of alcohol. I mean, there is a cutoff again for uh, ETG in hair, which is 30, and... Uh, it is acceptable for the commission who is uh, granting the driving license. Uh, it is acceptable to have a result between uh, 10 and 30, for example, because uh, that would mean that the individual is a so-called social user, but uh, is not a regular user of alcohol, and this is acceptable to regrant the driving license. The problem is that is when the result is above the cutoff because uh, in that population of uh, drivers who were already found uh, guilty of uh, driving under the impairment, the evidence that they are still drinking above a certain level, it is considered uh, very risky and uh, against uh, the regranting of the driving license. This is the situation in Italy. In Germany, for example, they are asking for total abstinence. So uh, when you test ETG air, the result has to be below 7 picograms per milliliter. And some interesting research that you did a few years ago, which now seems to be very relevant, is whether the use of ethanol-based hand sanitizers can produce false positive results. Yes. Uh, I don't remember. Now, I think it was... Uh, during a conference in uh, in Belfast, I think Northern Ireland, five or six years ago, I was giving a I had given a presentation about ETG in hair, and someone came uh, with this question: uh, What happens when there is a, a frequent use of uh, hand sanitizers? Can it give a false positive? So we that that gave, gave me the idea of uh, start this uh, research and. Uh, Oh, we had only one volunteer to try this, uh, to do this experiment. So probably this population is too small to draw any conclusion. But we observed that uh, even when you use uh, several times per day, these products containing uh, up to 70% of ethanol, the ETG in air will still result negative. So if, some, if sometimes uh, someone is coming again with a, self-explanation of the positive results saying uh, I was using this uh, gel uh, disinfectant every day we can probably be confident that uh, that's not the reality I mean this is not the origin the cause of the positive results there's probably something else 
Yeah, well, we're all frequent users of hand sanitizer at the moment. Yeah, no, so yes. if, you, if you want to do yeah, yeah. a larger population study, you probably can. Yeah, I expect this uh, new line of uh, justification in the next weeks from people coming to our laboratory when they test positive. The, <laughs> next, uh, the next excuse is uh, the, gel, uh, the hand sanitizer. Yes. Yeah. And so one other area of work that you've produced a lot of research in is the detection of new psychoactive substances, which is a real challenge, right, in, a, in any laboratory to be able to detect these new psychoactive substances. Yes, it, it's a very big challenge because um, there are too many. There are too many compounds coming out every day, every week. So it's basically impossible for a laboratory to have an updated method and keep pace with the introduction of these compounds into the black market. Uh, and uh, so probably, uh, yes, there are some uh, alerts or warning systems. I'm not familiar with the Australian one, but in, in Europe there is a very well-organized network uh, coordinated by the MCDDA. Uh, so every, every year there is a report with the list of new compounds. There are also, as I said, regular alerts. So it would be, in theory, possible to know which drugs are in the market. But it is, it's impossible to have a targeted method for, uh, who knows, 100, 200, 300 compounds. It's very, very expensive and probably useless because these compounds became, become obsolete after a few weeks. So uh, it's a, it's a real, real big challenge. There are some new technologies which might uh, help this uh, cat and mouse game for the laboratory trying to keep pace with this black market and having effective method to detect the NPS use. But the, in general, this is, these methods are very expensive, are only for a few laboratories, very sophisticated. So, yes, as I said, the main limitation is the cost of the analysis, which is rarely affordable by by clients. Yes, and as you say, by the time you buy in a standard and add it to your method and validate it, that drug may have passed and you will never see it again and they've moved on to something else By the time that you know that there is a new drug, the time that you buy the standard, if it's available, (laughs) the time that you receive it, the time that you develop the method, it takes, what, six months? Yeah, it's too late. Yeah, so what strategies are you using in your laboratory for detecting NPS? Well, we are trying to s- select the most common uh, drugs, for sure. This is based on, uh, again, from uh, report, international reports or scientific literature. So there is a, a panel of drugs of NPS which is uh, still... Uh, common because uh, they have uh, good effects. Some drugs are uh, discarded by the users because uh, they have also negative effects. They're not good for them. So uh, instead, some of them uh, remain popular for for longer. And then uh, we try to update our methods uh, little by little. And and now this is, uh, I'm talking about uh, target methods based on UHPLC, MSMS. Uh, in terms of new research, we are trying to develop non-targeted approach based on um, high-resolution mass spectrometry. 
So this could allow to identify new compounds uh, with unknown structure because, uh, for example, you, you are able to identify a certain fragment in the mass spectrum. So the, some fragments are common to a certain class, like, for example, uh, 105-4-fentanyl analogs. And, uh, so this could be an alternative approach. More, more, more recently, we are trying to develop uh, approaches by, based on untargeted metabolomics. In this case, our aim is to identify a pattern of endogenous metabolites which are um, generated by the intake of a drug, no matter which one. And uh, in, we hope that we will be able to identify a pattern of metabolites which is common to the entire class. So, for example, if uh, we develop our method on fentanyl and then tomorrow there is a new ana analog of fentanyl, we hope that uh, these two compounds, they both generate the same fingerprints of metabolites. So we will be able to uh, have an alert that in that sample, there is something from that class. And this would be a screening method and then, of course, once you have this uh, alert from the screening, you still have to develop and have a targeted approach to give confirmation analysis and the results which has uh, forensic validity. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. So it, it's almost analogous to the uh, activity-based assays that other people are working on, but this is using LCMS to actually detect these endogenous yes, compounds, as you say. Yes, it's uh, analogous in the sense that they are both uh, comprehensive screening for the class of MPS. The technology is, of course, different, but uh, they are both promising because, uh, again, it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, having uh, comprehensive screening approaches. And then you have to go looking, I guess, for the actual yes, compound. Yes, yes, but... Uh, if you have a very good uh, sensitivity and uh, you are able to exclude all the samples that are certainly negative, that it's already a very important step. I think that in the future with this new technology, the number of uh, false negative will, uh, will decrease. And this uh, is at the moment uh, the best that we can hope when uh, testing for MPS. So you mentioned you're using um, LC triple quadrupoles for a lot of the screening. Are you also using QTOF for the routine screening or is that only reserved for particular cases where the presence of an NPS is suspected? No, at the moment we are using QTOF only for research purposes because uh, that's why we have it. We want to use that uh, last generation instrument uh, to try to have some uh, interesting uh, results for, uh, in terms of research. But uh, we also tried, uh, just for our curiosity, to uh, transfer our routine methods from the traditional uh, triple quad to, into the cutoff. And we noticed that, uh, for example, in terms of sensitivity, there is no difference. In case, if needed, it can be used uh, with no problem. Yeah, oh, that's excellent. Yeah. And I was very interested to read a paper that you published fairly recently, a perspective paper in drug testing and analysis, which was about NPS in workplace testing and some of the considerations that maybe uh, we don't always think about. Often when, when a new NPS comes out, what we want to do as scientists is add it into our method and start reporting it 
and report it basically as low as we can go on in terms of our detection levels on our instruments. But as you mentioned in this perspective paper, there are some other considerations that we should be thinking about there. Yes, it's, it's true. I mean, it's uh, you cannot... It's it's risky just uh, to simply report a positive because we have a very low limit of detection, and today, of course, you have because the modern technology is uh, so sophisticated that uh, the limits of detection are increasingly low. It's amazing the tiny amounts of the substance that you are able to see in uh, inside the biological samples. But um, yes, you have to be very careful when you report the limit uh, results at the limit of detection because. Uh, it, uh, there is there might be a sanction for the individual imposed on uh, on uh, what because uh, we, as we mentioned before for sure in some situation the passive exposure can happen and uh, when um, you are exposed and you are not aware of this exposure to a substance and uh, this exposure results in uh, say for example in uh, 0.5 picogram per milliliter of urine I think that uh, no one uh, of us would be able to give an explanation of of, uh, of these results. So, and also in terms of uh, situation, again, if we are testing for uh, driving under the influence or being impaired at work, the results at that very low level is very tricky, yes. And obviously, between the different classes, I mean, detecting a very low carfentanil result maybe will be a lot more significant than detecting a very low cathinone, for example, which are usually higher dose. Yeah, you are right. That's a perfect example of the situation. And again, we, you lead me to remind that the importance of, a foren- of the interpretation from a forensic toxicology and uh, in Europe, in some countries in Europe, this is not the common approach. There, there are the politicians, uh, there are the physicians, uh, there are other uh, alleged experts which can uh, take a decision based on a report from the laboratory. But uh, this is surely not the best approach. There should be more... Uh, dialogue, collaboration between different uh, expertise. Yeah, because in terms of analytical cutoffs and things like that, for some of these NPS, we will never have enough data to firmly set a cutoff in terms of the interpretation of them. And so, as you say, it's just got to be that collaboration and it's almost a case-by-case approach in terms of that interpretation. Yes, I'm, but I'm more optimistic. I hope that one day we will have more, <laughs> enough data. Yes, yes, especially at least on some on some population or in certain countries. Then, of course, there are differences uh, across the world. But uh, for some for some situation, uh, it is feasible. Sure, I guess just not for these ones that are passing through very quickly and then gone again. No, no, okay, no. But take for example the. Law enforcement in the United States with fentanyl. For that population, I mean, the, the opioid epidemic is uh, ongoing since uh, uh, several years now, and uh, some uh, population are taking uh, fentanyl regularly. Some are just exposed because of their job, and I mean, law enforcement. Uh, when you have data from these two populations, you can start to at least make some uh, hypothesis on cutoffs, or no? What do you think? 
Yes, I think so. And and speaking of which, you have collaborations with um, some people in the United States testing uh, NPS in hair of opioid users. Tell us about that research. That's a very interesting research because uh, it's a nice example of collaboration between uh, two completely different uh, profe- uh, expertise. It was uh, between myself and the Professor Palamar, who is uh, an epidemiologist, and he was uh, uh, surveying the population in the New York area, and uh, we decided to try to combine the results from the surveys, the questionnaires, and the hair analysis. And we found that uh, quite regularly, there is a part of the population which is totally unaware of the drug that they are taking. It can be catinones instead of uh, MDMA. It can be fentanyl instead of heroin. I mean, there are also other uh, studies which are confirming uh, this uh, scenario, uh, for example, the data from the, the drug seizures, they've proved that um, in, in many cases, the pill of MDMA contains uh, NPS as uh, cutting agents or adulterants, and uh, they've proved that heroin is cut or replaced with fentanyl. But um, I think that uh, our findings were very interesting because uh, it was proved that uh, people, even when they are uh, giving answers to a questionnaire in a complete anonymous way, so they should uh, be answering honestly, they don't know. They don't know what they are taking. And this is a big risk for uh, health, of course, because when you know the effects of the drug that you are taking, uh, you can uh, try to cope with them or uh, take a, a minor, a smaller dose. But instead, when you are used to take, for example, uh, MDMA, a pill of MDMA, and uh, you don't know that uh, it contains uh, butylone, for example, you have no idea how what is going to happen. And uh, especially when you are for youngest individual, for younger individual, this can be a serious challenge for their uh, health. Yeah, sure. And so is that collaboration ongoing? Is there more samples that you're continually testing there? Uh, no, because for, for because of the pandemic, uh, oh, of the, course, everyone is locked down. So, Professor Palamar uh, is uh, now trying to serving online, but of course, he's not able to collect samples at the moment. Yes, yeah. this this pandemic really has put a halt on a lot of things in science. Yeah. I would use other words, but I'm not. I don't think I cannot say it on, yeah. online. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you've also done quite a bit of work in anti-doping and you were involved in the 2006 Winter Olympic Games which were in Turin. Uh, you were a bit younger then I guess but what was that experience like? You have done your homework you know everything about <laughs> The experience was amazing. I mean uh, uh, inside the laboratory it was something between the army and the school trip. We were working uh, 24-7 uh, but uh, with a very fun atmosphere uh, we were all uh, full of enthusiasm. Uh, uh, it was a great science, uh, and it was done during uh, what the most important event of that time, which, which is the Olympic Games. So I think I, I feel very blessed and lucky that I was uh, that I had that opportunity. Really, really unforgettable. Not to mention what was happening outside the laboratory in the city, but. Uh, 
inside the laboratory was, was was really great. Yes. So you didn't get to enjoy any of what was happening outside the laboratory, though, huh? Were you just working twenty four seven? I did. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't sleeping much, but uh, I tried to enjoy as much as I could. <laughs> well, you were younger then, so you you could probably handle that. Yes, uh, more energy. Yes. <laughs> Does your laboratory still do anti doping work now? No, unfortunately, no. Uh, not the at least not the official anti doping analysis. Uh, we are still offering some um, expertise for uh, special cases, but uh, the official controls are only performed inside the WADA laboratories, and uh, the Italian one is in uh, in Rome. I mean, it's uh, I don't know my feeling about it. Uh, at that time, I was uh, eager to do anti-doping, and I loved it. But uh, after when I began with forensic toxicology and we began from scratch because at that time there was no activity in that field uh, in our region, I became completely addicted to forensic toxicology. I like it, uh, I like it a lot. Uh, there is uh, probably the main reason is that uh, the routine analysis, even if it's routine, is more fun because uh, you have so many positive samples every day and uh, while in anti-doping uh, the number of positive is much much uh, smaller like two percent of, of the samples and when you have when you do test for 300 compounds because the list of uh, doping agents is about uh, includes about uh, 300 compounds when you test for 300 compounds and you have 90 percent of negative samples sometimes is uh, boring or frustrating i don't know yeah, that, I think that's one of the great things. Every scientist loves to find, you know, a positive, no matter what they're doing, whatever they're working on, you love to find something that's unusual or just to be the first one to know a piece of information that nobody else knows. That's part of the joy of science, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Alberto. Thank you, Tim. It was a pleasure. And thanks for listening. If you want to contact us, you can email us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tf2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.